0: away we go. So, ministry in the context of the breakdown of our society. um, When we are in the context of college, um, we learn ministry and we see ministry taking place in an idealistic and slightly unrealistic world. Uh, Here we have people who are all Christians, and here we have people who have a common understanding and acceptance of the word of god however when we leave here we go into a world that is very different to that now some of it's the same that is some of us go into churches which are so well taught the bible that we again have people who want to hear what god's word has to say who are trying to conform their life to that i've just spent a few days uh, in a church up in malaysia And uh, I said, how long do you want me to talk for? And they said, as long as you want to. I said, when's lunch coming? Well, when you finish. Um, This is an unusual church, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, Their passion is to hear what the Word of God actually is saying. And they're willing to... But most places, life is not like that. That is because we live outside the Garden of Eden. We live in the world of death. For the day of which you eat of this, you will surely die. We live in the world of broken relationships on the marriage front in particular. So, in Genesis 3:16, 17, uh, the woman is now going to have pain in childbirth, and she is now going to have conflict with her husband. We also live in a world of hostility in terms of work, but that's not the area we're talking about today particularly. We well, can be if you ask the questions. But we are in the world of family failure. We are in the world of, um, uh, of the oppression of women. We are in the world of death. We are in a world of society that doesn't work properly. Many of my missionary friends, when they've been overseas, have been frustrated at how bad church life has been. They have to come to terms with the fact that if it wasn't bad we wouldn't send them. There's no point sending missionaries to a place where everything's going smoothly. You send missionaries to a place where the locals can't do it and you need outside helpers to be able to do it. And so they go to churches and cities where there are only a handful of Christians and the handful of Christians that are there are all disagree with each other and fighting each other and the church doesn't function properly. That's why they're missionaries. It's really tough. Being in ministry in Australia is usually not that tough but it is still always in the dysfunctional end. Some of us go to those kinds of churches and suburbs where the dysfunctionality of the society is not so obvious. So, I've lived a lot of my life out in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and there are some. Uh, I've got a group of uh, friends, uh, middle-aged women, uh, who are alcoholics, but you wouldn't know it. They drive big cars. They dress beautifully. They appear to be sensible and sane. Their children are all in the best private schools. They, but they're alcoholics, and their life is unravelling at a great rate of knots. Uh, another woman who's made a fortune and lost a fortune uh, by snorting coke and by drinking alcohol. But if you met her, if we brought her in here, you would be impressed with this very impressive woman. But their life. However, when you go out to other suburbs of Sydney, uh, it's not covered up like that. It's not sophisticated like that. It's in the street, it's in the gutter, it's actually the domestic violence is manifest for all to see. The problems of children and their running around in riot is all too common and ready to see. And you go to some parts of Outback amongst the Indigenous Australians there's not even any pretense. The, The whole world has just gone mad. So How do we minister in the reality of a fallen world, not in the pleasure of a university congregation where everybody's young, everybody's intelligent, everybody's beautiful? Uh, We're actually in a place where everybody's problems are great. By the time you reach 40, 45, you will have had major tragedy in your life, on average. Very few people get to 50 without some significant major tragedy. Uh, A child's death or a child's born with handicaps or uh, divorce uh, in your families or unemployment, Uh, long periods of unemployment happen to you. Most people by their mid-40s have gone through significant uh, disasters. Most people at 20 haven't. And so it's easier to minister to 20-year-olds, it's harder to minister to 40-year-olds, just because of the fallenness of the world. Let me run through two topics, society and then church. First thing about society to say is that church-state relationships are very difficult. What, how much is the church involved in re, and, and to be involved in fixing the problems of society and how much do we leave the problems of society to the government to fix up? Nearly all social welfare programs that are available today started off as church programs and that have been taken over by the state. The schooling system, nearly all the, public, all the schools were started off by Christians. Uh, but then in the, in the late 19th century, the Christians persuaded, mid, mid 19th century, the Christians persuaded the, the state to run education but uh, the early schools were all Christian schools, the hospitals were Christian hospitals. Uh, You still see it in some names of some of the hospitals, but we started most of them, they've taken them over. And there's any number of these things that we started. Should we be concerned to run these things or do we leave this to the government? The things that we're talking about, like for example marriage, divorce, uh, the Christian view is good for society. It is good for society for mum and dad to marry and raise their own children. That is the good for society and good for the people within the society. It is the best way to raise children. And so what we are upholding, you would want for society, but should we persuade the government to impose it on society? Well, one of our very early chaplains here in the... uh, colony when he arrived found that hardly anybody was married so he persuaded government uh Macquarie that no government aid would be given to anybody unless they were actually married and so suddenly there was a whole long list of his first year or two of ministries down at St. Philip's Church Hill he was just running marriages day and day he marries everybody because if you wanted any government assistance you had to get married or be single but you couldn't live in a de facto relationship it was considered that this was good for society. And it was, because it stabilized society, you see. Um, Now, Kevin Andrews is a uh, Roman Catholic uh, parliamentarian. He set up a committee in the late uh, late 20th century, which reported about 2002 on the cost of breakdowns of relationships in family. And he gathered up, this government committee gathered up all the consequences of studies around the world on the effects of de facto relationships, the effects of divorce, the effect of breakup of relationships, and there was nothing positive that could be found, really, about any system other than mum and dad and their own kids. Married properly. Um, the children of divorce have... Now, you've got to remember this is a generality. Any individual, this is not true. But in generality, the children of the divorce have poorer health, poorer mental health, greater criminality, greater abuse of substance, more more criminal uh, records, than children who are raised by mum and dad. And the most dangerous person is de facto dad. He's the most dangerous in terms of domestic violence and in terms of interfering with the children. But of course, in our media, you're never allowed to talk about de facto dad or stepdad. You could only ever talk about father, even though it's not the natural father. But natural fathers are not nearly as dangerous as stepfathers. Now, you have a stepfather, your mum was a single woman, and she's raised you wonderfully, praise God, that's magnificent. I'm talking generalities. But of course, the paper always gives you the heart, the story, the individual story of someone who's risen above those generalities. But Kevin Andrews reports he's also produced a book on the subject uh, around about 2014 something like that, when he got kicked out of the cabinet I think, and so had time on his hands. Uh, And so the society will work best if they followed what the Bible says. Well, is that good enough reason for us to push it, impose it. How do we bring it to bear? How do we bring it to society? Can we keep talking to people about the good of living this way and still have them hear the gospel about the mercy and forgiveness of God and eternal life? The more you get involved in social justice, the less less you'll be involved in preaching Christ crucified. Therein lies a problem for us. Our society has collapsed I do not want to take us back to the 1950s. That's just a kind of throwaway line that people use in order to reject uh, anything that you like to say. Oh, you take us back to the 1950s. You can't go back to the 1950s. And I tell you, I was there and I wouldn't want to go back there. I mean, I won't tell you all the bad things about the 1950s, but I don't want to go back to the 1950s. However, our society prior to the 1960s was framed on a Christian understanding of society and it was taking on the marriage one for example in the early 1970s when Lionel Murphy uh, brought in a new marriage law system uh, that uh, changed the very nature of marriage in our society and has destroyed marriage in our society. It was a, a simple government change, it had to do with divorce but you can't have a divorce law so you have a marriage law but it redefined how you could have divorce. There's now no-fault divorce. It was a good idea in some ways, because people were doing stupid things um, in order to get fault. You know, they would pretend to be committing adultery in order to be able to get a divorce, because it was so hard to get a divorce except for adultery. And it it became ludicrous. However, um, Murphy's Law is that you are married as long as you are married and you will not marry anybody else until 12 months after you've stopped being married to the previous person. So when you go to your wedding you say for better for worse, for richer or for poorer, until death us do part. But what you mean is I won't go with anybody else until I've left you 12 months. So it's the only contract in Australian contract law where the words of the contract are totally meaningless. But that is brought about by Lionel Murphy, a well-known adulterer, um, who was in charge of bringing in the laws about marriage. As a consequence of it, ex-nuptial births have skyrocketed from 1900. No. Uh, 1800, uh, these figures come from uh, England, um, but are paralleled in Australia. From 1800 to 1960, to 160 years, the number of babies born outside of marriage varied from 5 to 8%. During war times, First Wo- World War, it rose to 8%. During peace times, it went back to 5%. For one hundred and sixty years, since nineteen sixty, the number of children born outside of marriage has gone up to to thirty eight percent. I think it is at the moment. So if you draw a graph, you see you have this huge long just line, and then suddenly like that. That is a mag, That is a significant change. Now people say, "Ah, oh, yes," but it's not just born outside of marriage. These people are born into a de facto marriage. I say, "Yes, okay." Up until the 1960s, we had legal marriage. Now we just have de facto marriages. De facto marriages, as you see in the Andrews report, are significantly more unstable than de jure marriages, the alternative legal marriages. Uh, Legal marriages have a divorce rate. Uh, If you are going to divorce of something like 15 years, de facto one seven years. It's that kind of difference. And when it comes to having children, This is a very significant factor because it takes about 20, or these days, 30 years to raise a child. Mm -hmm. And so the percentage of de facto marriages before weddings is huge. Uh, These days, something like 70, 80% of those who are getting married are already living with each other. Well, that is radically different to a previous generations. And uh, the percentage of non-church weddings has skyrocketed. When I was first ordained, I went down to St Matthews Manley, which is a great wedding kind of place, because it's right there on the Corso, and every Saturday, every second Saturday, I was rostered on to do the weddings, which was three or four weddings every Saturday afternoon, and they were the weddings of the community. Had, none of them came to church much, but we just ran weddings for people, because the only alternative was to go to a, a registry office, which was pretty dull, awful and horrible, uh, and just sign out registry papers. People wanted to have a wedding; they had to go to a church, basically. And today, uh, the minority of weddings are conducted by churches. Significant shift has taken place, uh, and I may say there has been a massive increase in wedding materialism. So, weddings, which really only cost a few hundred dollars, uh, now cost thirty, forty thousand uh, dollars or more, and. Therefore, people say, I can't afford to get married because I want to buy a house, I can't afford a house and a wedding, so I'll just live with it and and see the absurdity that takes place. So now we have a society where we're preaching the gospel and ministering to people who come from broken homes, de facto marriages, um, uh, and all the consequential uh, problems that flow in terms of children, who have stepbrothers, stepsisters, We have children who, you know, I've got three siblings, but they're from three different fathers than my father. Uh, Many being raised by single mothers who, next to the Aborigines, are the second poorest uh, people in Australia. If you want poverty, be a single mother. Uh, Government help and support is there, but the end consequence is poverty. Uh, Within 10 years of a divorce, the divorced woman is nearly always considerably poorer than the divorced man. Um, Even though at the time of settlement, she will get the house and get 50% of the super and things like that. Ten years later, she will be impoverished by and large, selling the house in order to continue, whereas the man will have regained his wealth and pushed on from there. Uh, The problems are just mountainous and the suburbs uh, uh, where the literary classes uh, live North Shore, for example, uh, who write about de facto marriages and all this are suburbs where people marry and live in fair family stability, whereas the suburbs uh, in the far western parts of Sydney uh, and the poorer parts of Sydney, apart from ethnic minority groups, uh, are the people who suffer the most from de facto divorce abuses. There's our society. That's, that's the world you're now ministering in. Very different world from the one I left Moore College to go ministering in. Very, very different world. Very complicated now. I'm moving to church. In church, the idealism of wedding service is a reality for us Christians. The wedding service of the Book of Common Prayer of 1662 is a magnificent statement of the nature of marriage, the nature of humanity, the work of God. It gives us the purposes of marriage. uh, It gives us the nature of marriage. uh, it, It has a role that is really significant. It's a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. The essence of marriage is faithfulness. The essence of marriage is not love, that's Hollywood, that's ridiculous. The essence of marriage is faithfulness. You make promises and you keep promises. And so the thing for look for in a marriage partner is faithfulness, fidelity. That is the person who can make marriage work. Uh, Love is not what you look for because that's called limerence, uh, which only lasts a few years. Uh, It's a terrible misunderstanding. Uh, Limerence is something you'll find in marriage counselling, Um, literature. Um, It also, the, the, the role of the wedding is really important in terms of its publicity, its public. That is you don't get married privately, you don't slink off and start home life with each other, you actually publicly tell everybody that we are now going to be husband and wife. Because when you get married, you unite two families together. It, it's not two people who get united, it's two families, because a key part of marriage is having babies. And so you now have uncles and aunts and grandchildren, grandparents and grandchildren. and A whole range of a network of social relationships is established. And so the way to do it is by getting everybody in the community, and especially the families who are going to be directly connected to whatever progeny come, to meet together, to pray for you and pray with you and to hear you make the promises and so on. Another function of it is consent. I know it sounds a little bit crude and ridiculous, but uh, in our society it's fairly important. It really is important that we hear that the couple and especially that the woman consents to this uh, arrangement. You see, we take for granted our Christian heritage Prior to the Christian heritage, people didn't consent. Girls were um, uh, married off to old men, by and large. And there are still countries and nations of this world where that is what is practiced. And there is no real consent from the girl. She just has to go with whatever old man they sell her to. That is not our way. And so, because our way has been running for centuries, we think it's, it's nothing special but it is something very special that we hear that people are saying yes I consent to this, this is not rape. this is my consent. I agree to this happening and to this doing this. So within our church the reading of the scriptures that are set for us in the pat in the thing, the setting out of the reasons for marriage that it all makes good sense. but if you're not a Christian it only semi makes sense. Therein lies a big problem. So we are, under, as a church, under pressure to change the ideals in order to suit our society. Uh, The feminists want us to have egalitarianism uh, as a way of conducting marriage rather than complementarianism. Uh, The difference there is the difference between two people rowing a canoe side by side, two canoes side by side, that is a feminist view of marriage, whereas a Christian view of marriage is you, you you sell the two canoes, you buy one bigger one and you're in the same canoe together, rowing with each other. It, it's a different concept that we have in mind and it's a concept that feminists have rejected particularly. Uh, Julia Gillard was a good example of this kind of problem because Julia Gillard revealed after she had ceased to be the Prime Minister, that since she'd been a feminist in her days at the University of uh, Adelaide, she had... Hello, it's good to see you here, Lucy. So, that's Lucy. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, it's her computer, it wasn't her stomach. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, that she revealed that she didn't believe in marriage. She thought marriage is slavery, that no one should ever get married. Uh, there is the person in charge of the laws of marriage, who actually doesn't believe in it. Uh, and that is the case with committed feminism. Um, uh, we also are being encouraged to change the views on divorce and remarriage because our society divorces freely, remarries freely, and therefore they expect us to remarry divorcees. And uh, we then have also the problem of what do we do about marrying people who haven't been legally married before but have been de facto married before and where do you go from there so you see pen you see it worked out in the problems of the royal family it's an easy way of seeing it from a distance away it's the kind of real life soap drama of the world but uh, you know the duchess of york had lived with three different men before she married the duke of york well on all statistical probabilities that marriage was not going to last which is what happened. It didn't last because the more uh, relationships you live in the less stability and the less chance of making one work. But there's the hypocrisy you see everyone knows that you have chosen to live in these de facto relationships but now you're going to go to the church and have a legal one. Well what were these ones that were there before? If she'd married legally before, we well, would say, no, you can't be now married. Bias. But then that's ridiculous, isn't it? Because she did the right thing last time, we won't do the right thing this time. Whereas if she'd done the wrong thing last time, we will do the right thing this time. I mean, how do you make it all work? It's a real mess, it's a nightmare. And the parish that we're in will have this social disaster of domestic violence, alcoholism, gambling, single parenting, with all the intergenerational consequences because it's the third and fourth generation that the outcomes of these problems come upon us uh, with terrible outcomes for the the children. I know from my own family background where my uh, grandfather and my step-grandfather both were killed Uh, One by flu, the other by being shot. Um, The consequence for my uncles and aunts and the consequence for my cousins has been massive. It goes three generations down. I mean, my grandfather died in 1919 through the Spanish flu, but all his children were then raised in poverty by a single mother. Um, And the consequence of then engaging with a stepfather had its difficulties when he was shot in an underworld shooting uh, and there were three more children from him. Then you had stepchildren and uh, stepbrothers and sisters to be looking after and increased poverty uh, for all of them and hardly any of them uh, came out. uh, None of them came out unscarred. My father was the one uh, who was least scarred by the whole experience. What happens in a crazy, mixed-up world happens over generations. It doesn't just happen to the one person. That's the nature of family life. That's why it's so important for the Christians to protect family life, because it's not just what you do, it's what happens to your children and your children's children and your grand. the children of alcoholics, the children of, uh, are nearly always no, the children of alcoholics have a high rate of alcoholism. The children of gamblers have a high rate of insecurity. So, last element of the church. To what extent does church engage in recovery ethics? You see, I remember leaving here and going to Manly where all these weddings were happening one after another. Most of it was straightforward. In those days, the non-Christians married at the age of 21 and 19. 19 for girls, 21 for men. The Christians got married in their mid-20s. Today, the Christians get married in their mid-twenties and the non-Christians get married in their early thirties, having lived with several people on the way through their twenties. That social change has been quite significant. But every now and then I've got older couples over there coming back to ask me to marry them and I didn't know what to do. Um, What do you do when they've got his children, her children and their children? They're not Christians, but they want to get married now. Do you encourage that marriage? Or do you say, no, no, you shouldn't get married? Is it different if it's got his children and her children? Without their children? Would, do you, how do you fix up messes like this? Um, do you say to people, look, you shouldn't get married? Um, because you already have been. And I don't believe in remarrying divorcees. Uh, when you meet a couple and they get converted, they're living in a de facto relationship, what do you say? Stop and separate? Or do you say, get married quickly? Or do you say, well, you are married effectively, so just keep going? What What is the right advice to be giving? I mean, if de facto marriage is fornication, then you'd want to say you need to either stop or get married. But if de facto marriage is really just marriage under a different name, then you say, okay, well you are married, keep going. What do you do if one of them is converted and the other isn't? So I saw a woman converted one time. She was married uh, to a builder. um, uh, And uh, she wasn't married, they were living together, had been for some years. And he rang me up. And said he wanted to come around and talk to me. So I said, sure. He said, I'm going to come and punch your lights out. And I thought, oh. <laughs> um, and uh, I said, uh, why? He said, I'll tell you when I get there, but you're very angry and I'm really... So he came around. Uh, what was he angry about? Why was He, he was really, he was ropeable. Um, and what was the problem? He said, I had a really good thing with the girl um, going. Uh, I lived my life, she lived I, uh, her life and we just did what we did. But you know, since she's become a Christian, she's been nice and she's been thinking about me and doing kind things all the time and she's really makes me feel guilty. I don't feel good about using her like I used to because she's so kind and nice and gentle and you wrecked my marriage because you've wrecked her by turning her into such a different, nice kind of person. This is a little difficult to grasp at the time isn't it uh, and so you know i try and help him see you know she is now living for you and this is really nice yes but i don't like it uh why because it makes you feel guilty yes i feel guilty and i don't like feeling guilty i'd rather just like to go back to the way we used to use each other anyway so i asked her about what she thought she said i think i'm married to him i said "Well, he married? no he doesn't believe in weddings Okay, now what do you say to the girl? You got to leave him? Or you stay with him in a de facto relationship? They stayed in a de facto relationship and sometime later they moved on from our church and uh, I mean most people don't know what relationship people are in. and There's just this woman comes to church, he never came to church. Uh, she came. Uh, they moved on to another place. Uh, and uh, country town actually. And when they were there, they went to the local Baptist church, the local Anglican Church being hopeless. And uh, once the Baptists found out that she actually hadn't been married to this unbeliever, uh, they wouldn't have her in membership in the church. And so they kicked her out of the church because of her de facto husband, not being willing to marry her and her, not willing to leave him. And you see the complexities of life? They are massive. How do you go about recovery ethics? Does getting converted make a difference? If so, what? they lived in all this kind of chaos, now they're converted. The chaos is still there. How do you fix up the mess that has come from all these lives? And what is truly for the best? You see, oh, I can't remember,, oh, do help me. You are very clever people, you know. Is it Ezra and Nehemiah who tells them to put away the foreign wives? Ezra? Well, it's there somewhere, in the Old Testament, left-hand side of the Bible. Um, is that what you should do? Put a wife, put away the wife who is inappropriate for you to have married. What happens to them? How do they then live? Uh, These are hard questions really. See, how do you maintain standards of purity and holiness that we're conducting family life differently to the way society does and at the same time extend mercy, forgiveness, regeneration and change to society? And so you accept the divorcee and remarry them because they weren't Christians, have become Christians, but those who were Christians, you won't remarry. Does this not seem unfair? The practicalities of ministry in this area of life are a complete mess. Finally, to say the thing that is as politically incorrect to say as there is. Uh, The victim is the victim and needs our support and strength and help. But physical violence is often an interrelationship with psychological violence that quite often is from the victim to the perpetrator. So the frustration that the perpetrator feels and gives vent to violence can actually be the bullying that has come from the victim to the perpetrator. Uh, I was called into a domestic violence situation on one occasion in which uh, uh, the man rang me uh, and begged me to come because he, uh, he was terrified of what he was about to do to his wife Um, He had dragged her out by her hair and dumped her outside the front door, then gone back inside and rang me because he was so terrified of the fact that he was about to kill her. Um, When I went to see them, it was uh, very dangerous to be involved in domestic violence at the time in which it's happening. I was young and foolish, didn't understand that at the time. Um, When I went to see them, um, it was a classic of the worm turning. For five, ten years they'd been married, she had bullied him day in, day out. And finally he snapped and could not take it anymore and exploded in the only way in which he could. He was a man of very few words. She was a woman of many, many words. (laughs) And she had actually run the house and emasculated him for five to ten years. And finally he snapped. And he dragged her out and threw her out the door because he was terrified he was going to use knives on her and kill her. And it was actually, in a sense, his loving care of her that he was as physical with her as he was because he wanted to be considerably more physical. (laughs) And so everybody could see him as the violent perpetrator of domestic violence. But in fact, the more I talk with them both, the more it was perfectly clear that she had been rescued by a loving, caring man from the abusive psychological violence that she had inflicted on him for all their married life. They're still married, they got together, It it was all sorted out that night. But she had to make big changes to her behaviour rather than him have to make big changes to his behaviour because he was a meek and mild, submissive man. Uh, If anything, he had to learn to be a bit more assertive because she was frustrated with him not being more of a man uh, while at the same time working all the time to make sure that he wasn't. So, life is very complicated. on the domestic violence front, most of the statistics we're getting you need to have critical look at. Um, I've forgotten the figures now, but it's something like you have 35% more chance, no, it is 30, not percent, it is 35 times more likely to be domestic violence if you're an Aborigine. It's double or something, the chance of domestic violence if you're in the country towns. Um, so you see these statistics about, you know, a woman dies every week in Australia. That's true. That's horrendous. That is just absolutely, totally unacceptable. Right? Uh, just, is just shocking. Right? However, <laughs> It's not necessarily going to happen in your parish, in the suburbs of Sydney. It's happening on the remote Aborigine reserves. It's happening, you know. I don't care where it's happening. It's bad, right? I mean, but our Indigenous policies are so bad that we are destroying their last refuge of family life, and now we're making people. In Sydney suburbs and in churches guilty for domestic violence which is not happening because what is happening out in Aboriginal the statistics are driven by politics and you need a a very careful analysis to to see what is happening Um, I may add in uh, 20% of domestic violence the man is the victim Uh, And part of the reason why uh, men are not killed is because uh, women aren't very good at doing it. Men are very good at doing it. That's why male suicide is much higher than female suicide, because women don't want to shoot their faces off. So they take tablets and they get found and get their stomachs pumped. Whereas men pull guns out, put it in their mouths and shoot their heads off. There's nothing can be done after that. So male suicide is way off the charts compared to female suicide. But it's not because women don't suicide or try to suicide as much as men, it's because men are just better killers than, than women. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of untold domestic violence done on men um, that just doesn't succeed like it does on women. But this is the world where it's a wicked world. It's awful. Please do not hear anything I've said here excuse in any shape, form or fashion any uh, domestic violence, let alone such violence as would lead to death. Uh, It is just 100% unacceptable. uh, I would add another factor in too, by the way, is that... um, I, I may be strange in this, but I don't think I am. I'd like to know whether there's changes over society, but the way in which I was raised, and most of my friends and contemporaries were raised, not necessarily within the Christian church, um, was that you uh, never raised your hand to a woman, that you always stood up in the bus for a woman to sit down, you always stood back and let a woman go through the door first, you always opened the car door for a woman, you always treat women with a, a distant respect that you would never treat a man and that distinction the feminists have removed from us and the idea of teaching manners to little boys is now poo-pooed and laughed at when in fact teaching manners to little boys were part of the programming of my head to you know hit him but never her. Right. well actually I wouldn't hit you because I was also taught never to hit a man with glasses on but the bloke there hes <laughs> right. but there were just certain rules like that which were drummed into us that just make the thing un- unbelievable that a man would ever hit his wife that's just I also need to add in pornography does not help at this level because uh, a large percentage of the pornographic uh, that is available to young boys for their education uh, is that women like uh, to be abused. And so if you grow up watching pornography um, you'll grow up with the sense that uh, um, sexual satisfaction for men and women uh, is developed by uh, men abusing, physically abusing women. Which, I mean, it it is just an unbelievable lie which our governments and our community is accepting. I, I, you know, it's just mind-boggling. Um, uh, the real problem with the pornography is the message it teaches is so evilly wrong, rather than Um, the guilt that is laid upon those who uh, watch it. I think we we really need to rethink pornography. Three o'clock, I can see some people need to wriggle, I'm going to lead in prayer, we'll go. eh? Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for everything that you give us. But Father, we live in this dreadful world of sin, this world of judgment. We beg your mercy and forgiveness. We thank you for your patience in holding back your day of judgment to give opportunity for people to repent and come to know you. We thank you for your patience with us that we have been called into your kingdom. We do pray, Father, that you would come and come soon, that your son would return to bring justice to this world. And yet we also pray that he would hold off to give opportunity for more of our family and our friends to come to know him as Lord and Saviour. So, Father, we... We don't know how to pray and so we beg for your mercy that you would do that which is right in your kindness and love that the lord jesus would be glorified in our lives help us father in our ministries give us wisdom father to know how to apply your word to this fallen world to know what to do help us father to live differently to the world in our own lives and in the lives of the congregations that you give us to care for But help us to keep preaching the gospel to those who are outside of this kingdom and whose lives have been terribly distorted by sin, that you would help us to bring them into the kingdom by the gospel and help us to sort out their lives once in your kingdom. Do give us wisdom and help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.